Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to Episode 1 of the Pennsylvania Project. Since this is the first episode, it's only proper to give a proper introduction. This broadcast is going to be divided into three parts. Why, how, and who. Why, we're going to introduce the rationale behind the show. How, we're going to introduce the show's format. Who, and I'm going to introduce myself. After that introduction, we're going to proceed to do a real show. All this in episode one. So, let's get started. Why? Why the Pennsylvania Project? Three main reasons. Reason number one, there's an issues gap. There are innumerable podcasts and talk shows, typically concentrating on national issues. There's none, virtually none, that concentrate on Pennsylvania issues. So we're going to address that issues gap by addressing Pennsylvania. Number two, there is a comprehensive solutions gap. Most opinions you hear on the radio are one-offs, often inconsistent, self-contradictory, not based in reality. Number three, most importantly, there's a credibility gap. Issues are spun out of control. Facts are left bleeding in the ditch, leading you to guess the ulterior motives of the people who are saying them. What we need instead is someone to present credible, comprehensive, and consistent framing of the issues and, more importantly, presentation of the solutions, all from a Pennsylvania perspective. Toward that end, ladies and gentlemen, meet the Pennsylvania Project. Our vision, our purpose, our why is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that mission, to achieve that vision, our mission here is to showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing Pennsylvania and to explore their solutions. But more importantly, we believe that it's more that more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. There's the why. The how to serve that mission. Every show we're going to divide it into three parts. You, them, and us. Part one of the show is going to focus on the you. That means you. Each episode begins with your questions, your opinions, your solution, your whatever. We want to hear from you. But rather than a live call-in format like a lot of stations and podcasts, we do an email-in format. That means you contact us at contact at PennsylvaniaProject.com. That's contact at PennsylvaniaProject.com. When you send in something, we'll let you know. We'll be responding to you. You're going to know what episode is going to happen, and so you'll be able to tune in because you are an integral part of every show. So that's part one, you. Part two, them. To help us showcase the political, cultural, and environmental issues facing Pennsylvania, each episode will be hosting a guest, but not just any guest. We're looking for guests who can spotlight an issue, present a solution, and with a clear Pennsylvania connection. Of course, this is still about you, so if you have a suggestion for a guest, please let us know. Contact us at contact at PennsylvaniaProject.com. So part one is you, part two is them, part three of the show is us, because at the end of every episode, it's our turn, or more precisely, my turn. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on some particular issue, one that really sticks in my craw, pardon the pun. But who is Ken Krawchuk? Who am I? Very briefly, I'm a Pennsylvania Pennsylvania native, born in Philadelphia, raised in a row home in North Philly, still married to my first wife, Roberta. We have three daughters, three grandkids, and one on the way. Professionally, I'm an information technology entrepreneur, author, Toastmaster. 
Politically, I'm a former Democrat of 20 years before I decided to stop using your means for my ends. Just recently, I was the Libertarian Party candidate for Pennsylvania governor. I know this state. I love this state. One of the reasons why I'm here is your caster for the Pennsylvania Project. So there's the why, how, and who of the Pennsylvania Project. And since this is episode one, we have no email ins as yet. We're waiting on you. But we do have a guest. And something does indeed stick in my craw. So today, we're going to be looking at Pennsylvania political parties, specifically one that's very near and dear to my heart, the Pennsylvania Libertarian Party, with our guest, Siddharth Bartkar. After that, I'll be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw, talk radio. So there's the outline. This is who we are, what we're going to do, and what the Pennsylvania, excuse me, what the Pennsylvania Project is all about. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after this information. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines... We take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Thinking about getting your first tattoo? Maybe you want to add to that sleeve you started or cover up that one regretful choice. Put Sam C. and his team of artists at Iron Will Tattoo Club at the top of your list. The team at Iron Will has plenty of designs to choose from. They can create an original design or work with a design that you provide them. Call 267-893-7625 today to schedule your free consultation. That's 2678-WE-ROCK. Or visit them on Instagram at Iron Will Tattoo Club. Back to you, Ken. Thank you much, Paul. Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the showcase portion of the Pennsylvania Project. My guest today is Siddharth Paratkar. He's a 17-year-old high school senior who's enjoyed partaking in political discussions since the young age of 15. 
Siddharth is the founder of the blog Parties and Policies on WordPress, where he tracked the impact of various states in the midterm elections, Pennsylvania included, of course. And he analyzed how different states would impact the party divide in Congress. Outside of politics, Siddharth enjoys playing tennis, studying economics, history, and reading scientific literature. He's also a very interesting conversationalist from my point of view, and he's a Toastmaster. It just doesn't get any better than that. Siddharth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Now, we're doing this a little bit different because Siddharth wanted to ask me questions about the Libertarian Party, and I wanted to ask him questions about his political views as well. So I see this set up as a give and take between the two of us. And I'll let you take the lead on it because you're the one who has the the questions that you want to see answered. And don't be surprised if the discussion gets taken in odd directions. That's why we're here. Okay. Well, we did have a discussion prior to sitting down here and starting to talk on the radio show. We we discussed things like gun control. We discussed a lot of the economic uh, tax policies that are presented by the Libertarian Party. And one thing that I did notice on your website, KenK4PA.com, subtle plug there. Thank uh, you. Subtle plug there. Um, one thing I did notice was you wanted to try and reduce or eliminate all tax as much as possible, mm-hmm. and you would have preferred voluntary funding in, in its stead with with things like your society, uh, separation of the society and the state. Uh, that, that, that was a page that was very helpful to me in my research. So one question I had to ask for you was, doesn't the reliance on voluntary funding necessarily disadvantage communities that are poorer than some of the more affluent communities in Pennsylvania? Well, there's a couple of different ways you can look at that. One of them is, why are they poor? And I could put to you that the they or the businesses around them or the municipalities they live in are overtaxed. So there's just not as much economic activity going on. And the more economic activity you have, the better off we are. But the question becomes, how do you help various people? Well, it says in the Bible, the poor you shall always have with you, and there will always be people poorer one end of the spectrum or the other. Then it comes down to a more specific question of how would you address each of their individual needs? One thing that I would do, and this is something I mentioned during my campaign for governor, is I'm championing something called the Universal Charitable Credit Act. What that would do is it would allow you as an individual to choose the charity of your choice, and whatever money you donate to them, you could deduct that dollar for dollar off of your taxes. It's not a deduction. It's a tax credit. So if you owe $100 in taxes, but you gave $100 to your local soup kitchen, you could write off that $100 so you wouldn't have to pay any of the taxes to Pennsylvania. The good thing about that is that you would be deciding who needs the help, not some bureaucrat, not some special interest. So if you see a definite need, whether it's better education, school books, pencils for the inner city, teachers are already doing this. If you see that need, you'd be able to actually cover that without any economic impact to yourself. But best of all, you would be deciding and not some, some bureaucrat. But regardless of whether it's a tax credit or it's voluntary funding, doesn't that necessarily make it more difficult for poor communities to get the funding or the access to amenities that we can provide them in a system where we have taxation? Well, I'm not going to stop you from providing them. See, taxation, it it takes away your ability to help them. I mean, what the last number I saw is like 50 percent of your income goes for taxes. Suppose we started reducing those taxes, and now you have 25%. Now you have a lot more to give to charity. Also, generally speaking, Americans are the most charitable people there are. So 
a lot of people would step up and do it. People are stepping up and doing it now. Think how many more would do it if they had the resources to do it. And there's a secondary question of the taxes that you pay now, it's not going to the poor. You know, there's, and this is radio, so I can't, I can't show you, but when you send a dollar to Washington, the first thing that happens to that dollar is most of it vanishes in the bureaucracy. And when the money comes back to the state, of course, the state has their own bureaucracy. By the time it reaches the people who need it, you're lucky if you get a dime on the dollar helping out. But if you were able to donate directly, like, for example, through the Charitable Credit Act or something like that, you'd be able to help 10 times as many people, educate 10 times as many kids, provide 10 times as many pencils, school books, or whatever it is you're interested in, rather than cutting in the bureaucrats. Let's cut the bureaucrats out of it. We could reduce taxes that way, increase spending on the people who are disadvantaged, not just the poor, just people in general. People need help all over the place. Now, that's, that's one part of the answer. And I, I could go on more <laughs> about the separation of society and state, which you mentioned. Because helping people on a societal basis is not necessarily the best way to handle it through government. Government is not the best way to handle that sort of thing. <clears throat> Excuse my coughing here. Instead, I would like to set up a separate organization, which I call society, the fit of originality there. Society would look just like government in every way. It would have, for example, at a national level, it would have a president and a congress. At the state level, it would have a governor and a state house. At the local level, it would have a mayor and a town council. They'd have their own constitution, their own courts. But the big difference between government and society is that society would not have the coercive power of taxation. So if they wanted to spend money on something, they would have to rely on contributions. And rather than passing laws, they would pass guidelines. Their budget would be what they would like to spend money on. Now, you mentioned helping the poor. Well, society's budget would take care of those things. People would vote for those things. Your representatives would vote for those things that you think they think would be the best or how they were lobbied, helping the schools, helping the neighborhoods, paving streets, whatever it may be. And it would be society that would pay for that. And if there wasn't enough money, if there weren't enough contributions, well, a couple things society can do. They could always run a telethon or something like that, like we do now. Or they could, like you and I do, if we don't have the money for something, we tighten our belts. We prioritize. Maybe we hold off spending money on libraries for the moment. Maybe no new books for the next couple of months. And we spend money to address a natural disaster instead. But the best part of that is we're not forcing you to pay for for what government wants to do. Also, it's if the bureaucrats or the people you elect decide they're going to spend it on something that you don't want, you're not going to contribute. So there's an automatic governor, pardon the pun, put on spending of the government. So that way, if, if we separate society and state, we'd be able to help the people, set up the safety nets that, that is needed without taxing people, without holding a gun to their head. So what I'm hearing a lot is that there's... The the government is not doing the will of the people nearly as much as it should. And <laughs> do you think the government is doing the will of the people right now? I think that there are people who are greatly impacted in positive ways by the actions of the government, and I think that it would be not an ideal situation to take away that which they actually need. So you said said a yes or a no? That would be a yes. It'd be a yes. Okay. So then shouldn't we be trying something different? Because what we have now is clearly not working. On the national level, we have, I don't even know what the latest trillions of dollars of debt is, and it's growing all the time. Fortunately, Pennsylvania has a constitutional requirement. I left my constitution in the car. I feel naked. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Pennsylvania has a constitutional requirement to uh, 
that's no, that's a federal constitution. We don't we don't need that here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> when you get outside of Pennsylvania, deal with other states, then we'll need that. But there's a constitutional requirement that we have a balanced budget. Fortunately, we we do have one. Although there is a lot of borrowing going on, and I hear the Pennsylvania Turnpike may be in trouble because they overborrowed or something. In any case, well. You you just said that you know we we need a different system than what we have right now. So why why not go for the idea that we keep the stuff that's working that is actually helping people, or we restructure that to make it so that it can help more people as opposed to changing the system entirely and going for a libertarian sort of government? Well, I think you just said the same thing twice. We're going to restructure it, and that restructuring separation separation of society and state is one good way to do that. Because what that's going to do is that's going to take more and more programs out of the control of government, out of the spending that the government is doing. And look at it this way. Suppose a program is real good, like to, to help the, the poor people you were talking about before. When we move that over to society, people are willingly going to support that because everybody wants to help the poor. But if it's a bad program, like, I don't know, something that allows the Pennsylvania legislatures to do junkets to foreign countries to help private industry – People aren't going to fund that. They're not going to not going to vote for people who are going to be asking for that kind of stuff. So again, it's going to be another governor on the overspending of society. Good programs will survive. Bad programs will fail. But what about those programs that maybe the average person doesn't know about, or those programs that might provide benefit that they're not directly aware of? Like, for example, if you know, I, I I don't think there's a person alive maybe in Pennsylvania who thinks this, but let's say that you didn't know that your firefight, your local police station, or you didn't know the, the local fire station, and you didn't think that they helped anyone because you didn't hear any fires being reported or any crimes being committed. Why would you then give money to a police station or a fire station in order to mm-hmm. support something when they're obviously you know, there's no need for it. You point out a huge problem in Pennsylvania, and I'm going to dedicate an entire future show to this. Nobody, well, I'd say nobody, I'll say few people understand or know how their government operates or what it does. Let me ask you, have you ever read the Pennsylvania Constitution? Not specifically, no. Mm. Have you read any state's constitution? New Jersey's. Okay, I've read New Jersey's as well. They don't teach it. In Pennsylvania, they don't teach the Pennsylvania Constitution. I go to schools and I ask that question, and people look at me with blank faces. I've had teachers, you know, wave their hand at me, saying, "Move on, move on, move on," because they don't teach it. So it's no surprise that people don't know what's going on. They don't know what their government is spending money on. They don't care because they haven't been exposed to it at an early age. Like, for example, you're you're a toastmaster from an early age. You know the benefits of learning how to communicate, how to be a leader. Most people don't know that. So it's the same thing with government. Now, how do we get from where we are now to where we should be, where people understand that? Well, obviously, the first thing we need to do is enlighten people about the Pennsylvania Constitution, what the state is supposed to be doing, what their local local governments are supposed to be doing. And most local governments in Pennsylvania are set up by the Pennsylvania Constitution. So that would be definitely the starting place. Now, as for specific cases, I mean, my, I have a volunteer fire company. I live in Abington Township, and they're great. But they do fun drives. They'll do parties. I knew a beef and beer. They should do a beef and beer. I'd go to that. Things like that. Just to let people know what is needed, when it's needed. But there's a, we have self-government here. That means you've got to do it yourself. So if somebody is in need of something, then by all means, get out there and do the advertising for it. Make it happen. 
And another thing that you mentioned is that good programs will be funded and bad programs will be left to, you know, they'll be left to rot. But who is to determine what is a good program and what is a bad program? <laughs> won't, won't people, uh, you know, vote in their own interest and say, well, I don't need to, like, I don't have to worry about, you know, school. I don't have any kids that are of school age. I'm not going to pay towards the school. And it's now left only on, you know, parents with children. That might not be enough to fund the massive overhead costs of an entire school district. Exactly. I'm glad to see we're agreeing on this because <laughs> school systems, most of them are Taj Mahals. You should see some of the things. My school district has, an, has a flight simulator. You know, you climb into it. What do you need a flight simulator for? There's all sorts of excess spending that's going on. And I do realize that it's like 70 or 80% of school budgets, at least locally, are for salaries. But another thing I found, and I'm again using Abington as the example, I checked around, went to the websites, called the schools, and I found that what, in terms of tuition, they charge. At the low end, the Catholic schools three, four, five thousand dollars. The Montessori is a little bit more. Private schools ten thousand, eleven thousand. If you leave out the exclusive schools like the Friends School, Germantown Academy, places like that, the average per year at the schools, the cost of an education for, at a private school is about nine thousand dollars, right in around there. Now I haven't looked in a year; that may be nine five right now. But if you took the Abington School District budget and divided it by the number of students, it comes out to almost $20,000 a year per student. If we could come up with a different method of education, we've just shifted to private schools. We could cut property taxes in half overnight. So these seniors who are being driven out of their homes, we could say, tell you what, you've done your part. You don't have to pay property taxes anymore. And the people who can't won't have to. But when you say... These massive schools, and I don't know, you, you lobbed me a softball when you said that, <laughs> because they are massive, and we shouldn't be paying for that. Schools are not this boxy building down the corner. They could be something like the apprentice program. My father was a tool-and-die craftsman, made jet aircraft engine parts before he retired. If you were going for that kind of an education today, you'd spend $100,000, $200,000 to get that education. My dad didn't spend any money at all. The Bud Company of Philadelphia hired him as an apprentice, and they taught him how to do it. That is the sort of education we should be looking at now. Elon Musk is doing this with SpaceX. Boeing is doing it. Boeing can't get enough pilots. The answer is they're training their own. They're going to the schools. Mechanics, same thing. They're saying, how would you like to do it? We will pay for your education. Just come work for us. So you can't think of schools as this boxy building up the corner anymore. You've got to think about education. And in this day of the Internet, why do we have these boxy schools anymore? You can get an even better education going through the web. And I hear there are people in Harrisburg who are saying, oh, no, we should, we should rein in these charter schools. We should rein in these cyber schools. No. That's the problem with a communist central planning thing that we have now. We should do away with all that. Thanks for that question. That's a good one. I did love you, Asafo, because I, I, I knew almost word for word what your answer was going to be. And, and, I'm, and I'm quite honestly impressed by how well you managed to stick to what you have on your website, because that's what I read in preparation for this question. Because, because I actually have a, a decent counter to that. I, I, I hope you'll allow me to self-indulge, uh, self-indulge a little bit there. Let me just jump in with one thing. The reason why I say the same thing all the time is because I'm a libertarian. And we libertarians are different from the old parties because we are the party of principle. 
Every law we support or oppose comes back to one central idea, the idea that your life is yours, that your property is yours, that you have the right to live your life your way without interference, provided only you respect the rights and property of others. So whenever anybody asks me a question, it always falls back to my central principle, your life, your way, as long as you respect others. I can definitely respect that as a political ideology. Oh, I didn't know you were a libertarian. <laughs> it's all it's all semantics and definitions at this point. But but I did have a point that I wanted to make regarding those uh, the the cost of school specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, those the nine thousand dollars a year for a student for private schools and twenty two thousand dollars a year uh, for public students doesn't factor in the cost of the overheads of the schools that you know that, that we're requiring to build. Like for example, um, I, I know that my school district made an addition, uh, a, a few additions that they're planning to go through with right now that they have voting. Uh, proposals that they're putting out right now, uh, and these would cost in the range of one to two million dollars for each school that they're planning to add them to. There's about seven total in my district that are planning to get some additions to them. But voluntary funding and l- local level funding has never been demonstrated to be able to reach that kind of level for just one school district. Okay, so I mean. Uh- I'll let you finish. No, 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 go. I I understand what you're asking. My first question is, why do they need this addition? And if they were required to stay within a budget instead of having, I don't know, having the automatic power to raise their own taxes to pay for this, saying, oh, we're going to raise your taxes next year, we're going to vote for it, you got no choice. If they didn't have that, they would have to tighten their belts. I already mentioned this. They're going to have to live within their means and say, you know, maybe we can – Double up here. Maybe we can do something else here. Maybe since it's only $9,000 to send them to private school, why don't we take this and do this over at the private school and we'll save our taxpayers some money? So the, the question becomes, why is it necessary and why is their only solution to dip into our pockets and take our money for what they think is best? Because – when, when I give the when I gave the example of the additions, I was just trying to point out how expensive not even building the entire school is, but building a few extra tennis courts or building a few extra you know bleachers for audience members to sit versus the cost that you have for building an entire building from the ground up that that goes well into the tens of millions of dollars even for a small school district. So I don't understand how it's feasible to even at like the county level to expect the p- members of the county are going to be voluntarily giving up their funds for such a massive scale project. I agree. I agree completely. That's what I said. What you're going to do is you're going to have to prioritize. You're going to say, do I really need this? Is there some other way of doing it? And I already mentioned one great answer, cyber schooling. There's no reason for the kids to be going there. And then there's a question, you mentioned little things like tennis courts. I'm sure you could do a neighborhood fundraiser to do something like that. And if you're going to try and build a big building, there are a lot of empty buildings around there these days. You know, you could just take one over and refurbish it. Do it for a lot less money. Uh, I'm not going to buy into the idea that the only thing that we can do is dip into somebody's pockets. What we haven't tried, at least not in the last 100 years, is to allow the people, 120 years, I guess it is, is allow the people to decide how that's going to be spent, not some board of education or some unelected board of education in Harrisburg. So how would you feasibly try and... Uh, logistically make the switch for tens of thousands of public school children to make the switch Mm -hmm. to either private school or cyber school because I know that 
uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, and this is a trend you can see nationwide, private schools account for 10% of the students, uh, and they only account for 25% of the schools. And that's with them rejecting a decent number of applications. Mm -hmm. So how is it feasible that we can get these massive numbers of kids into private schools and cyber schools? And how would you recommend we do that? Well, the, the answer is to do it slowly because you don't want to cause any disruption, especially when we're dealing with our kids. What I would like to see specifically is to bring somebody into the equation who's been missing for far too long, and that's parents. What I would like to see is that parents would have the ability to choose any government school for their child, and the funding which would have gone to the local school will follow the, the child to the school of the parent's choice. That way these private schools would, or government schools would get more money and grow. And the bad schools would be put on notice by their dropping enrollment. They better get their act in order or else they're going to be shut down. Now, when I say that, people say, oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to shut down my local school? Well, the answer is yes, because if it's no good, if you're moving out of it, why do we want to keep it open? Why are we going to prop it up? Think of it this way. When we shut that down, that private school, as you said, they don't have room for all these kids. So what they could do is they could take over that failed school in the inner city or wherever it is, and they could use those same winning techniques that they used, which made people want to go to their schools, to save that local neighborhood school. So for the same educational dollar, we can get better education, not better in my opinion or your opinion, better than the opinion of the people who actually matter, the parents. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone. They're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Take it over, Ken. All right. Ken Crutcher here again. We're back with the Pennsylvania Project and our guest, Siddharth Paratkar. And before the break, we were talking about education and taxation. And maybe I should turn this around a little bit and ask him a couple questions. 
Well, in light of what I was saying about the cost of education, how would you address the massive spending that we're doing on the schools right now? What, what alternatives would you propose? I completely agree with you that we need to, you know, as you say, tighten our belts. We need to make sure that we're not spending extravagantly on things that aren't necessary. But at the same time, I feel like there are uh, lots of public schools that are still not getting uh, the funds they deserve or are not being able or don't have the ability to put those funds to proper use. And, you know, in America and and even in Pennsylvania, you know, I don't want to snub on your state because, you know, I'm just from just across uh, the border. But there are Pennsylvania's 38th in terms of uh, student performance on standardized tests and it's ninth in terms of spending. So while I do agree with you that we need to cut back spending, I don't agree that a move to privatization is the way to go because that puts more strain on the public school system that is already being snubbed and doesn't have the ability to give to the students as much as they can. Well, I've already addressed that with how just before the break about how we are saying that let the parents choose and they could go to the government schools which support the sort of things that they want. And that way you give more autonomy to those local schools to do those things that they need to do. But the problem with giving parents a choice is that it, when you push towards privatization, you are necessarily uh, giving the parents who are already rich that choice. For example, you, you said that the average cost of private schools is about $9,000 per year. Yep. That $9,000 just to spend on education is not feasible for many of the poorer families who are in the public education system. So by giving parents that opportunity... I don't think that's true because most of them are living in rental communities, rental houses. The home ownership among the people you're talking about is very, very low. They're not paying those taxes, at least not directly. They're paying it through their rent or something like that. But it's really the landlords. I was going to say slumlords, but I don't want to be so judgmental. They're already paying that. That's already taken into it. It's not like they're paying for that directly. But if we could reduce that cost overall and improve the quality at the same time, well, that would give general improvement to the economy in good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. And you mentioned the rich people. They're already not sending their kids to the government school system. So that's really no impact right there. I guess I used the word rich wrongly in that scenario. I, I meant the parents who could decently afford to pay $9,000 a year for a private school education. Well, I'm looking at – I'm a homeowner in Abington Township, and I'm already paying that kind of money. So it's already there. And most of my tax money, my local tax money, goes for the school system. So it, it's already there. We're just talking about re, rechanneling that and allowing parents more of a say in it. And to me, that's that's a good thing. The parents are the people I care about. But do you think it's necessarily fair to ask poor communities if they're already paying that in rent and for other reasons? You know, they might not have that exact same amount of money to be able to spend it on a private school education. Well, again, you're assuming that we're going to have these Taj Mahals, these government-run Taj Mahals. And as I pointed out earlier, there's all sorts of alternatives to those boxy buildings on the corner where, where you and I went to school. And if we start using some of those, and homeschooling is a great one. There's a lot of homeschooling going on right now. And that's, that's not a big drain because the more and more these people get together, the homeschoolers I know, one person will know something and they'll take in three or four or five of the neighborhood kids and they'll say, here's how, here's how you program a computer. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. So in terms of the basics, you could do a lot more with homeschooling, and you don't have to use that, that boxy building up the corner. 
So, so you're more in favor of the private schools taking those over and refurbishing them for whatever they might feel is necessary instead of, you know, charging kids extra to for their own building, whereas they could just take over a mm-hmm. building that already exists. Yeah, but yeah, but that's the second or third step down the line. The first step is to allow parents to choose any government school for their children. And that way we'd improve the education we have now. It would free up some of the schools that are underperforming and improve the education for the kids in general. Then once we have that, then we can start doing the, the shift over. And there are already some Pennsylvania school districts which don't run any schools. Bryn Athen comes to mind, a Philadelphia suburb. Uh, they place their kids in surrounding schools. They have very low property taxes. Okay. Well, at that point, I think we'll just have to, uh, you know, agree to disagree because the, the the one thing that I just can't get over is the ability of, you know, poor families to be able to afford anything other than what they have right now because what they have right now is the is a public school and they don't have either the time nor the money to be able to afford other options because, you know, in, in a lot of these families, I don't think it's feasible to ask them, you know, to have a computer that their child can go on for cyber, uh, for cyber school and nor do I think that they have the funds ready for a private school education. And so that's just, I guess, the impasse that we're at, that we can't figure out if it's feasible. Well, I can't figure out if it's feasible for poor people to be able to afford that higher level of education. Well, again, that's a second or third step down the pike. So let's do the first one first, improve the education in those local schools by allowing parents to choose whatever school, whatever government school they'd like for their children. And then we'll worry about the shifting over the private schools afterwards because once that school is is emptied out after they shut it down there's no reason why the local private schools couldn't take it over and use the money that the is currently being earmarked for taxation for the regular schools government schools to be used for those as well but there is one prohibition in the Pennsylvania constitution which says that you cannot use that for sectarian schools so the any religious schools or something like that couldn't take care of that. But religious schools are already standing on their own, and they're saving taxpayers a lot of money as it is. Okay. Well, do you have any other questions for me, uh, kind of separate from the school issue? Um, I don't know. What, are, what were some of the other things that we were raising in the, in the car? Well, just taxation in general, because a couple, several of your answers, your questions, relied on taxation. And let me go through just the questions of if I took your wallet from you I would be a thief correct yes yes I would agree with that and if those of us here in the room voted to take your wallet away from you we'd all be thieves right yes I would agree with that but all of a sudden here we are in where are we at we're in Balakinwood if Balakinwood comes in and says hey give me your money all of a sudden it became okay they call it taxation we crossed the line there didn't we is taxation theft? I would disagree with that position. On, on what basis? On the basis that it is that what I think we need to do with regards to good and bad programs is not to say that uh, voluntary funding is the reason. I don't think that that's the that is the way that we can have public programs. I think that. If we're going to have taxation at all, which I think that we should still have, that we should be able to cut back spending and spend more on good programs and less on bad programs and let the people decide what programs that their tax dollars should go for. But I don't think that taxation itself as an idea should go away. Hmm. So you're in favor of theft? 
if you want to define taxation as theft. And how, well, on what moral basis can you justify taxation? On the, the ends justify the means? On the moral basis that we are a society-based species and that we have developed a very tribal sense of biology and that anything that benefits our tribe or however we define to be our society is justifiable. And so if we have this city and if the city needs a, you know, if we need another public school to support the number of people, I I don't want to keep on going back to schools, (laughs) but if we needed another public school in order to support the number of kids that want to be in school, then I think that it is justifiable for us to contribute or what we have already contributed. I think that that money should be able to go to a public school. Yeah, but then that opens up the can of worms, the whole slippery slope. Well, we need it for this. Let's need it for that. Let's need it for something else. It's the same thing they did with the war on drugs. They started confiscating your house, your car. Now they're saying, oh, let's do that for people who are hanging out with prostitutes. Let's do that for this. Let's do that for the other thing. But it all comes down to the same thing. You're not treating your property as your own. You know, you're saying that I need something. I'm going to take your money to spend on it. What I would disagree with there is that I don't believe that the government can just say, we want this program, therefore we're going to raise taxes, or we want this program, your tax dollars are now going to that program. They, what I think is that... No, 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 that. no I'm, I'm saying that I don't agree with that position, that the government can oh. do that. I don't agree with them being able to do that. Okay. I want every single program that the government will ever want to implement to be a 100% people-decided vote. So if the people say, I want this program for whatever XYZ reason, then only can the government institute that program and then only will their tax dollars go to it. If that's not something that the people want, it's off the table. Yeah, but it still comes down to the same thing. It's the people spending somebody else's money. And that's an easy thing to do because it doesn't impact you at all. So, you know, why don't we just confiscate the wealth of all the richest people in the world? Elon Musk and Bill Gates and all those other people. Let's just take their money. Because if you're not going to recognize property rights, so it's, you're playing every card is wild. You could do really what you want. So... Comes so, comes down to the question: Do you respect the rights and property of others, or don't you? It sounds like a no. So, would you then be in favor of people being able to choose exactly where every single of their tax dollars are going? Well, then it comes down to the question of what sort of a government would you would you want to have, and that's that's a philosophical question it gets into. <laughs> and I've already talked about the separation of society and state, and that would reduce the size of government dramatically. But I think the only proper role for government is to defend the rights and property of the citizens. So that would mean the courts, police, fire departments, things like that, just however to defend people. Everything else becomes an argument over special interests. So would people be able to sue companies in this uh, world, and would they be able to... Mm. Now you're, you're talking about what the criminal justice system would, or the civil justice system would look like. I would like to see that done voluntarily as well. And you heard the commercial earlier for Atlas Snubbed, There's the book. There's a great description of what the criminal justice system would look like there. So if you, you were convicted of – there wouldn't be driver's licenses, for example. Instead, if you were driving like an idiot, you'd be given a can't-drive license. And if we caught you driving, we'd throw your butt in jail. Same thing with guns. If you were an idiot with a gun – We'd give you a can't carry permit, and you you wouldn't be able to carry a gun. If we caught you with a gun, we'd put your butt in jail. And that could be done with anything. You could be a miner polluting the environment, and we'd give you a can't mine license. 
if you're a drunk, you know, DUI, we give you a can't drink license. And if we catch you doing anything like that, we put your butt in jail. So instead of giving people permits to do things, I turn that around and say people have the right to live their life their own way as long as they respect the rights and property of others. So when you start talking about suing people, I mean, now you're talking about the, the regular regular sort of uh, rules that we have now. And I, I disagree with those basic premises. But, you know, I'm seeing here that we're running out of time. This about wraps it up for this portion of the show. I'd like to thank again my guests at our per- – Siddharth Parikar for coming along, appearing on the Pennsylvania Project, Episode 1. We're going to pause right now for some information, and when we return, I'm going to be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw, talk radio. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Thinking about getting your first tattoo? Maybe you want to add to that sleeve you started or cover up that one regretful choice. Put Sam C. and his team of artists at Iron Will Tattoo Club at the top of your list. The team at Iron Will has plenty of designs to choose from. They can create an original design or work with a design that you provide. Call 267-893-7625 today to schedule your free consultation. That's 2678-WE-ROCK. Or visit them on Instagram at Iron Will Tattoo Club. Back to you, Ken. Thank you very much, Paul. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the ranting portion of Episode 1 of the Pennsylvania Project. Do you know what really sticks in my craw? Talk radio. Isn't that ironic, this being a talk radio show? And we're also podcasting it. That's why I call myself a caster. But I'm hoping by identifying some of the flaws in talk radio, we may be able to turn it into something a little bit better. The biggest thing that sticks in my craw about talk radio are the callers. Is it me or do they take too long to get to the point? They ramble on and on and on. I heard a lady would call in. She says, 
I really want to talk about that. I was talking about this to my lady friend the other day. She and I went down to McDonald's to go get something to eat. And I got the salad there. But I don't really like that salad anymore because the tomatoes in it just aren't as fresh as they used to be. But I really like tomatoes. You know, I grow tomatoes in my back. And you're thinking, good grief, lady. Get to the point. What are you talking about here? That's one of the reasons why the League of Women Voters uses those little index cards for questions. Because there's only so much you could fit on those things. But it's those callers. They come in with those long questions, and you get to the host saying, come on, come on, come on, get to the point. And then those who do come right in, maybe they, they're just so nervous, they start going, well, like, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm like, oh, man, that's, that's just as bad. At least the old lady talking about her tomatoes, she was making a little bit of sense about what's going on, but the, the nervous people are just wondering how, how they're going to get through it all. And the ones who do manage to communicate, most of the time, their ideas aren't thought out all the way through. They'll say things like, Medicare for all, and not really think about how they're going to pay for it. They don't have the the whole big picture in mind. They're not looking at how it's going to weigh weigh the good against the, the harm that it might cause. And this goes back to what I was saying with Siddharth a few minutes ago about the good that he's looking to accomplish, but the evil of using taxation to pay for it. So these people, they're just not thinking through everything that they're saying about the different different suggestions they're making. And for this, I'd, I'd like to quote the satirist Tom Lehrer, who was very big back in the 60s. He said, I feel that if a person can't communicate, the very least he can do is shut up. And sometimes when I'm listening to talk radio, that's how I feel. So I, I always go away from talk radio, especially the, the caller in, call-ins. That's one of the reasons why here at the Pennsylvania Project we have email ins, because you can be as verbose as you want, and we're going to be able to summarize that, get down to the question, whatever it may be. How are we going to pay for the schools? What are we going to do about guns? Whatever it may be. And that would give more time for the answer and go easier on people like me who just don't want to sit there and listen to the whole big, long introductions. Another thing about talk radio and I, I hear this sometimes in the afternoon ones, not the big ones, but some of the local ones. What happens when nobody calls? All of a sudden, it's really, really quiet. And the host, he has a list of th- topics that he talks about there. He's only got so many. And he's got no foil. There's nobody to oppose him. Like, for example, with Siddharth and I a few minutes ago, we had a good exchange back and forth. He was saying, how are we going to pay for this? I want to steal people's money to pay for this. How are you going to build that school? And I would say, well, we're going to build it voluntarily, or you're going to tighten your belt. And we had a lot of good back and forth on that. But if there's nobody calling, he's rambling down his B list of topics. That's why we have the email in, so that we're not going to run out of anything. And one thing about the emailing in is that we are going to let you know when we're going to be airing your questions. So that way you know to tune in so you can hear the answer. So we'll answer your email and say, yep, you're going to be on the one coming up this week. So that way we'll be able to be there. And that would avoid the uh, one of the other major things that sticks in my craw. You know, and it's not just talk radio, but it really extends to the media in general. I mean, it gets really, really widespread. And I'm talking about Local news, local TV news, national news, mainstream media, all these different people. There's been a lot of talk lately, for example, about the fake news. And, of course, the media denies it. No, it's not fake. 
but it's rampant. It's all over the place. And a lot of times they're just twisting facts. They're presenting their own facts. Maybe not twisting. Let's just say they're coming at it from their own point of view. Let me give a great example. The Washington Post. I don't read the Washington Post anymore because they are so guilty of this over and over and over again. And they, I don't pay too close attention to the national scene. I'm a state guy. But every now and then I, I tune in to find out what's going on just so I can be a little bit intelligent when I decide who I'm going to be voting for. Although it's been many, many years since I voted outside the libertarian parties because I believe you have the right to live your life your way. But it was right after Donald Trump resigned and I saw the headline in the Washington Post said, all the senior officials at the State Department have resigned in protest. And I thought, wow, that's pretty bad. You know, we don't want these people to go. There's a lot of institutional knowledge there, a lot of relationships that have been established over the years. And I was looking through the details and said, yeah, and they had quotes from the people resigning saying, I won't work for this guy, Trump, on and on and on and on. And I thought, that's interesting. And, and the next headline down said that Trump fires the senior staff at the State Department. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did Trump fire them or did they resign? So I read through it, and it says that when they first come in for their job, they all, it's standard, they all sign a, an undated resignation letter. And it's normal for every president to get rid of all these people at the beginning of his term. So what Donald Trump did, and I'm not a Trump supporter, I'm not defending him, not by any stretch of the imagination, but what he did is what every president did, what Obama did, what Bush did, what Bush did, what Clinton did. He just got rid of the people who don't agree with him. And then I looked at the next paper, and it said, Trump fires senior staff. Trump fires, seniors, Trump fires, Trump fires, Trump fires. I kept looking for somebody else who said senior staff quit. And the only one that said that was the Washington Post. There. There is your fake news. It's true, but it's twisted. They did resign. They resigned years ago when they first took the job. They had an undated resignation. This is the kind of thing that really annoys me about that fake news. And it's rampant. But here at the Pennsylvania Project, we're going to do our job to show all sides. And as the discussions with Siddharth earlier has proven, I would like to see people who are not who agree with me. I want to talk to people who don't agree with me because one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to learn where I'm wrong and I'm going to improve myself or they're going to get another idea for another way of how to do things. In either case, there's going to be an improvement. And that's our goal here. We're going to explore all solutions. And if you think we're missing something, especially with our discussion about taxes in schools, let us know. Send us an email, contact at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Let us know. Give us something to talk about on our next episode. It's not just the fake news. There's also the non-news. Good grief. And, you know, we're talking about news so much, we should really define what we mean by news. Because news is a relative term. News can be, can be what? It could be the story about how the little doggy next door died and they found his chilled body sitting in the grass. Or it could be about... Some children getting bombed in Aleppo overseas by a U.S. drone. Is that news? What constitutes news? News is really things that are interesting to you. And if you want to, if you want to get into something, then you should look at those channels who are talking to what you want. But the non-news, like Malaysia Air Flight 70, 
CNN talked for days, and they had no news. The plane was missing. That's all they could say. Well, here at the Pennsylvania Project, if we have nothing to say, counter us that follows the advice of Mr. Lear and talking heads. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. And when I have nothing to say, my lips are sealed. So that about wraps it up for episode one of the Pennsylvania Project. We'd love to hear from you if you have something to say. Contact at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited and recorded live at the studios of WWDV Radio, broadcast at 8.60 a.m. in Philadelphia and podcast at thepennsylvaniaproject.com. Our technical producer today is Paul Nicotera, webmaster Steve Worley, marketing guru Connor DeGuris, executive producer Mark Rosacco, and your caster, me, Ken Crawchuk. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thank you.